Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Runs World Podcast with me, Rick Pearson. And me, Ben Hobson. Today, we're talking with Lauren Fleshman about her new book, Good for a Girl. A fascinating story. The book, The book is fascinating. And the topics that we get into now are fascinating as well. And, and ones that we've touched upon, I think, before on this podcast. But uh, Lauren is so eloquent and yes. uh, informed and just generally a, a fantastic talker that the the subject sort of comes to life as she talks around um, the female athlete experience and what that means and, and how it's, you know, needs to change. And so it was, yeah, it's great that she came on. And we fully recommend everyone ordering her book, but also just enjoying this chat and maybe having a bit more of a think around running and, and the world that we live in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a huge topic, isn't it? Um, and yeah, uh, Good for a Girl is, is, is a cracking a crackin read that people need to get hold of, um, male or female, because these issues actually um, should be uh, known by everyone, I think, which is um, obviously we, we said to Lauren at the end, oh, it, would, it would be great to have Jane to talk to, to you about this, which is which is true. I think it would have been great to have um, a female perspective from from, our, from the runner's world side of things. But um, she was very gracious and said, no, actually, actually, it's good to have um, men talking about this because it's just as important for you to to engage with this subject which is true isn't it yeah it, it's a conversation for all and hopefully this 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 small little insignificant podcast that we do rick about running will actually uh, make it will make some difference to someone somewhere so that's all we can hope for but um amazing to chat about her career as well which is phenomenal yeah um, a brilliant runner yeah, was, yeah. We, we, we are surprised aren't we when by the caliber of of guests yeah they keep here. coming on here <laughs> come on <laughs> ridiculous come on all yeah right. um well, look, let's, let's get let's let's get on our guest of the week. Yeah, let's do it. Guest of the week here in the studio. Guest of the week sometimes on the phone. Could be an athlete. Could be a physio or a complete unknown. Our guest this week is one of the most decorated American distance runners of all time. Her new book, Good for a Girl, looks at some of the pitfalls and prejudices facing female runners of all abilities and we're delighted to have her on the podcast. So Lauren Fleshman, welcome to the Runners World podcast. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. For any of our listeners who are sort of unfamiliar with your um, stellar running career, could you give us a brief rundown of, of some of your achievements as a runner? Um, well, I had a really promising high school career. I was one of the top high school runners of all time in the United States at the time, um, California native, and went on to be recruited to Stanford University where I had a Hall of Fame career there with five NCAA championship titles, 
15 All-American honors, and three of those were back-to-back outdoor 5K championships. And then I uh, proceeded to have a 13-year professional career, which had a lot of ups and downs. I would say I didn't fulfill the kind of the promise that my collegiate career and collegiate record holder and all those things would have projected. But that's sort of the a little bit of the basis of the story is um, where things go right and where things go wrong and um, who do we attribute those things to. There's a tendency to attribute so many of the problems that female athletes face to the athlete themselves. And of course, there is some personal responsibility involved in things, but um, there's also a lot of systemic problems that are are the true root of a lot of the the problems of the roller coaster of the female athlete career. So, I mean, that's kind of the basis of this book, right? This good, good for a girl is all about that, and and that is that what motivated you to write it, just in general? Yeah, definitely. I think that um, through high school and college, I had a pretty storybook career, really. I mean. There's a lot of places where female athletes um, sort of, I guess, like hit landmines or pitfalls or whatever, uh, pretty predictably. Middle school is the first place where um, female athletes are dropping out of sports at like huge, you know, three, four times the rate of male athletes. And that's during the period of breast development. And then um, when the menstrual cycle happens, there's a whole other thing. There's like all these places that, that when you have a sports system built around the male body, when a few female athletes gained access to it through a lot of advocacy work, um, we didn't actually have a say in shaping the systems that we participate in. And there's a lot of assumptions of sameness um, between females and males that um, maybe work to equality advantage in a lot of industries, but in the sports industry, ignoring sex-based differences leads to a lot of harm and pain. And so I didn't really experience that in high school and college myself, but I saw it happening around me to my teammates. I'd have a competitor that just kicked my butt one year and then just like disappeared the next year and, you know, never heard of her again. And there's this long string of female young phenom athletes that you just don't hear their names again. And, um, and so I, in my story, I, I wanted to use my career as a way to take the reader like kind of front row seat to this pathway of development of the female body in a male sports system and just show them how I was watching it happen around me. And and I didn't understand it at first either. And I don't think most people do understand what's going on. Um, And then as I start to figure it out as a, as a professional, really, um, when I start to finally come up against some of the forces that took down a lot of my teammates along the way, and I start to face those forces myself, whether it's through pressure to be thin, pressure to make your body into something that isn't developmentally appropriate um, for your age and, and developmental stage, whatever those things are, uh, you start. it started to happen to me. And then I started to use my human biology degree at Stanford to like research and kind of use that science literacy to try to understand it. And then after my career developed for until 2013, I wanted to become a coach of female professional athletes so I could do it differently. I was very passionate about trying to create an environment where the environment that I wished I'd had or that I wished that all young developing female athletes had and just see if it could be done differently. And after eight years of that, I wrote this book. Um, So that's kind of the pathway. And I think a lot of the, um, I'm really proud of the book. I think it's impossible to really do everything you set out to do in a 
like putting words on a page in a particular order and <laughs> sticking pages together. But um, I feel like I did the best work I could possibly do. I'm proud of it. And I hope it helps some people. Yeah. What what would be some of the hallmarks of a a kind of female centric athletic system as, the, as opposed to the kind of default male system that we currently have? Well, what I think a lot of people don't understand or haven't even really thought about is that um, our most like, federally funded and globally uh, funded sports institutions are serving 13 to 22 year olds. Um, that's like, it, especially in the United States with our robust NCAA system. But I know that in the UK and other places, they, they're developing uh, young adult talent as well through their own systems. And, but those systems were originally designed around the 13 to 22 year old male body. Um, and 13 to 22 year old males are going through a very uh, advantageous physiological change during those years that's pretty much up, 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 up. If you don't experience an injury or significant life setback, your physiology is primed through male puberty to have increased in testosterone, androgens, um, increase in strength, you know, all the different things, recovery power. And from about age 12 and a half to 20, the, there is a distinct difference between how males progress. Like there's like between 12 year old girls and boys, there's really no sex-based differences in performance. Female athletes can compete just as well. But then once puberty hits, there is this shift. And so that's the system that sports was built around the incentives for like, just take college scholarships, for example, in the United States. And I know a lot of UK athletes come, come up to the United States on those. Those are designed around who's the best at age 17, 18 right? And that is the exact age when the female body, if left to develop on its healthy, totally normal timeline, is going through a plateau or even a slump that's temporary. And if you built the sports system around the female body, you would never even, you would never put the incentives, the greatest incentives around those ages. Um, and But since they're there, there's this massive pressure um, well, since they're there and they're not like respected and acknowledged and encouraged to, to be their own thing, there's this massive pressure to mimic a male sports experience in a female body. And to a lot of female athletes and coaches and parents, even I get so many emails from parents of like concerned that their their daughter's body has changed, um, and and they it's viewed as this threat or this negative thing when we all know that the best female runners, runners in the world are in a woman body. They have gone through puberty. They are strong women and records aren't held by 15 year old prepubescent girls, you know, so we need to go through this change to reach our ultimate potential, but we don't. So to have a, a sports system where female athletes can thrive, we, we have to shift some of the incentives. We have to look longer picture with our female athletes. Um, and and embrace and encourage a wider in particular this one this one's huge just a wider diversity of bodies we make this assumption that there's kind of like that female bodies need to have this very very narrow band of body fat like a male body does to be excellent at the ages of 13 to 22 but that's not actually true there's there i think there's more body diversity possible in excellence in the female body um, you see it in all sorts of sports. You see it in women's tennis is a great example lately. Women's gymnastics has changed dramatically recently um, than it did when I was a kid. And I just think that if we can learn to go, hey, let's stop comparing to the default male form 
and aiming for that. And let's just focus on what is already naturally happening to the female athlete form and respect that, make space for it and see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. I think that something very interesting in your book is the overarching sort of damage that the, the current system can actually place on female athletes in particular. Um, as you say, when uh, periods come in and, and, and uh, these young women being sort of like coerced into basically training their bodies to not have periods and the menstrual cycle how i mean how significant is that i mean that's so i mean the example i can think of is that dina asher smith was competing recently in an athletics meet and you know she her performance she said that she was having women's issues i can't quite remember the phrasing of it but she sort of stated in a in a post race interview that that was the sort of cause of the lack of performance and it was kind of almost like Harold is like wow this is such a breakthrough moment that she's sort of mentioning this and it's kind of like wow that's kind of odd in itself that that's not even talk like it wouldn't be talked about so I mean just a bit more on sort of that the sense of that and from the book and, and the sort of the pressures that young women are put through yeah I think that because of this sort of male default norm that women do that in all industries when we've entered into male spaces we felt we have had to try to like mimic the male experience the male culture male jokes male language to fit in and and then eventually what happens is then you're like oh wait there's enough of us here we can affect the culture ourselves we can change you look at the me too movement's a great example of that like once you get enough women there and you go wait a minute we don't have to do it this way um this actually isn't beneficial to us but the, the things that differ about the female embodied experience up until very recently have been taboo to talk about um you would be you would never acknowledge that your menstrual cycle could have affected your performance negatively because it would be like admitting the the thing that was used to exclude you and people like you for a really long time. Um, it's the same thing as being pregnant in the workforce. It, you know, there's all these penalties that happen for being pregnant in the workforce. And if you admit that your pregnancy is impacting your work performance, if you actually admit it while it's happening, you feel like you're doing a disservice to other women around you. But then if you don't admit it, then then you also just further the cycle of like having to suffer in silence. And so, yeah, I mean, we should completely expect in the female side of sport, we're going to have competitions that are affected negatively by our menstrual cycle sometimes. And that's part of, that should be part of like the drama of sport. If you don't penalize, if like, I don't think you should make the incentives for, well, here's a good question for you. If males got periods, um, and you could have a key moment sort of notched down 5% by bad timing, um, what would you do? I mean... How would you yeah, feel? I'd, I'd want, I'd want, yeah, I'd want, I'd want that to be acknowledged, and, uh, like, officially. Yeah. For, for not to, and, it, and to be something that's, like, a rule to be put in that, that accommodates that. And certainly something mm-hmm. that you feel like you should be able to talk about at the very least, yeah. 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 Like if you got a cold, you'd want to talk about it, right? You wouldn't want to just be like, yeah. oh, I can't mention my cold. Um, and and yeah. then you think yeah. about when you know professional athlete contracts are, can be really ruthless. And those are also designed around men. And then women came in and they copied and pasted the language. And that's why there didn't used to be anything around pregnancy or in the word pregnancy was never even in them because male athletes don't get pregnant. So 
there's all these things like that where if you make the stakes so high that you have to achieve a certain place at a world championship and that happens to be the day you get your period, it makes you horrified to get your period. It makes you incentivized to not get it. But if you don't, if you aren't getting your period, then you have three times the risk minimum of getting a stress fracture up to five times the risk of getting a stress fracture. Your bone density is going to be lower and you have this small window of time in your life. It's like 12 years or something to build your bone bank for your whole life. Um, and if you, you know, I think that window closes at like 26, 27, something like that. And so if you don't, if you're compromising your menstrual cycle, the menstrual cycle isn't just about baby making. It's about depositing bone and all those hormones are like about immune system, healing, recovery. It's the female body's way of doing what the male body is doing in its own way over there. So it's, it's an essential function to keep going. Um, but sometimes in order to, you know, in order to keep that going, the negative of that is you're going to have some unpredictability in your performance occasionally. And not every female athlete is affected the same. Some, some women have no problem with their period and performance. So that's the other thing is it's individualized. So I'm glad people are talking about it. Um, we need to keep talking about it and we need to, we need to like normalize it, especially for the younger athletes. One of the, one of the, one of the other parts of this is um, often like when we look at exercise studies, so many of them are like either largely men or, or, or men only groups. It's, um, it's staggering. I think it is slowly improving, but often we look at studies and say, Oh, and you read into the small print, it's like, oh, uh, actually, uh, 40, 40 blokes have, have done this study. It's not actually yeah. about like, yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? I feel like that's another area where we need to, there needs to be like female-only studies and so, or certainly mixed studies, not not just kind of like, oh, it's, it's a men's study, but it's probably probably true for women as well. Yeah, well, that all comes back to that assumption of sameness. I think that we, it's convenient to assume that females and males are, the same. Um, and we are more alike than we are different. Obviously, we're not a separate species. But to assume that our physiology is going to work the same, that you could take an all-male study and say that, oh, yeah, this applies to everyone is is going to be a problem most of the time. I can't remember the exact numbers, but I've seen some of the data that you're alluding to of like, uh, like what was it? Only It's in the teens, like, a, like let's say 15 or 17% of studies in in exercise physiology included female athletes, or there was something like that. And very few are only female athletes. So just studying us as our own group is, is rare. Um, and obviously we need more of that, but I just find one of the things I find fascinating about this assumption of sameness is like, um, it's kind of a, it's sort of like a um, unintended consequence of the liberal feminist movement of the seventies. Like there was a period of time where it was essential that we as women focused on the ways we are the same because in order to achieve basic things like the ability to own property you know get your own credit card which took until the 1970s in the united states these things are pretty recent <laughs> um access to sports like the first ncaa championship in my sport was the year i was born 1981 like these aren't that long ago so in order to like get access to these things we needed to say we're just like you to the people who are in power we're the same as you. All this pseudoscience being weaponized against us, like your uterus will fall out, mm, your, yeah. you know, all these things. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. you get um, a deep voice, that sort of nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and just like those are not, um, 
we needed to kind of focus on how we're the same. And then, and that worked. It got us access to the, the spaces we were excluded from. It kind of earned us our humanity in the eyes of law, of the law. But then now it's been 50 years since Title IX, for example, of women getting equal access to sports in the United States. And now we can see that um, there are limits to treating us the same, that we do actually, we would thrive in, at equal rates um, if we had our sports systems built around our norms and our differences. How much of that is getting more um, female coaches and how much of it is educating um, the ma- like male coaches on, on these issues? I think it's mostly education. Um, of course, I'd love to see more women in coaching. Absolutely. Like I was one of very few female coaches in the professional athlete space. Um, and I think only, I want to say 17 or 18% of running coaches in the United States are women. Um, which is really low. I mean, really low that in the NCAA, the average for women's teams is 42% of women's team coaches. And that's all sports are women now, which is almost half. Um, but of men's teams, it's only 3% are women. And of course there's no real reason why a woman couldn't coach a men's team, but, um, but we're like activists aren't even bothering to really fight for equity in that space or equality in that space. Cause it's just, that feels really pie in the sky at this point. Um, so we're sort of settling for half of half the jobs, but you, whether you have half of the coaches are women or not, everyone requires education. Every single person, every woman who has come through this sports system, um, it, they have a female body, sure, but like also menstruates is not a job qualification. You might be a little bit less likely to make some of the mistakes, but what we know is that people are more likely to um, repeat the culture that they experienced to some degree. And there are plenty of female coaches who um, emphasize a, a culture of body shaming and um, age inappropriate leanness for female athletes. Like women are doing the same thing. I don't know if they're doing it at the same rate, but I certainly know that they're doing the same thing. It's what we need is a fundamental shift. We need we need required education. And I believe a coaching certification, a special one to coach anyone in a female athlete body that is just demonstrates basic grasping of female puberty, female physiology, and a normal, healthy performance wave. We have more of a wave than like a line. (laughs) So understanding that those things are normal and then um, if you just have that basic level of understanding, we'll have so many fewer problems with female athletes. This is the Runner's World Podcast. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. But even understand if people understood that as you say those fluctuations to a greater extent the performances were just going to get better right this isn't just like a sort of yeah this isn't just like a court like oh okay just make this better for for women competing this is like understand this to the great nth degree and we've got like super athletes absolutely they'll be exceptional you just think about the any athlete male or female the the worst thing for your career is to miss time it's inconsistency right and it, if you can get through with minimal injury and illness and you just stack together the years the months the years you will be you will reach your ultimate potential um and it's the missed time that just kills you and so many female athletes are missing time because not because their body changes, but because when their body changes, it's not met with a welcoming environment. It's met as a threat and it. Then they start to fight their body and then fighting their body leads to the broken bones, the broken tendons, the you know suppressed immune system, and then missing time. And then once you're missing time from injury, you're fighting back, you're fighting back too soon, you get injured again, you get in this cycle, right? So you just think about all the lost talent. I mean, uh, I'm only one example, right? But that's why one of the reasons why I wanted to tell it in a memoir form is that to have had so much success in high school and college, and then once I started to view my body as wrong, um, wrong for the job, I actually compared myself to a, a profile on Paula Radcliffe on the World Athletics website, and I saw height and weight listed, and I was like, well, we're the same height. Um, we're both of... Uh, you know, English descent, and we're both blonde. <laughs> and she weighs 10 pounds less than me. So I should lose 10 pounds, right? Because she's the best one of the best in the world. And you look at that, and that's such a normal thing to do. And yet, that was totally inappropriate for me. And it turned out when I talked to her years later, that she never even weighed that, right? You know, it was yeah, just right. on yeah. the website. Right. Um, and because of that, because of that shift in my mind that my body was wrong, I ended up having, you know, four stress fractures. The years that I remained healthy, I was a national champion twice. I was seventh at the world championships. So like when I put it together, I was still that talented, hardworking, you know, athlete that showed so much promise, but I lost so much time on, I never found out how good I was. And I'm over it now, you know, I'm 41. I don't really care. Like there's so many more things in life, but it truly is painful when you're trying so hard and dedicating your life to your dreams when you're being sidelined by completely avoidable things, preventable things. And I think like why this matters to people outside of sport. Like I think that if you read my book as a non-athlete, and this is what I've learned so far from people who are not athletes, especially women who have read my book, um, there is this thing you can identify with if you're going through life um, feeling like the body you're in is wrong. and the joy that it steals from you, it's really like, 
the the space it takes up in your mind it's like this static that interferes with hearing the music of life um it's it the times that i was really like hard on myself about what i looked like which huge percentages of the female population are i can't speak for men but um you are you are dampening your capacity you, what you can achieve how big you can love all these things are impacted by how you feel in your you know how you are embodied in yourself and so i think that there is a larger story here of any system that is causing a group of people to feel wrong in their body needs to be changed um it the 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 ripples of that how that will spread into the world are substantial um and actually, Lauren, in the intro, intro of your book, um, you write that any discussion about changing women's sports need to involve all those that compete within that category, um, including, amongst others, trans women and people who don't fit within the gender binary. I think that what I've learned about social justice in general is that there's a temptation to take the um, the largest group within a uh, sort of subjugated group, the group that's suffering, let's say the marginalized group, you take the majority group within that marginalized group, and they end up being the voice of that group. So in the case of like race, or in gender, um, and sex in the United States, that has mostly been driven by white feminism. Um, and you and the and that is like a inherently racist way to try to fight for equal rights for women because the experiences of white women are dramatically different than the experiences of black women, indigenous women, disabled women, et cetera. And so to, if you're going to speak for women in the issue of dealing with the patriarchy, you need to have a room, including the voices of inner, like intersecting identities within women. Trans women are a group within that group. And um, whether or not you believe that it is, quote, fair for um, for trans women who were assigned male at birth to compete in against female bodied people, um, which I think is is one valid opinion. Um, we're talking about two different things. We're talking about there's gender identity and then there's sex. And I think that we are oversimplifying it in sport where we're talking about uh, people like to say um, that sport is divided by sex, not gender. And that is why they use that to justify the exclusion of trans women and trans men from sport. But sp sport is also designed around gender. Um, I, be I believe from the from the history of what I've studied, that for example, Title IX was passed for both reasons. Um, it is, was passed for women and it was passed for female-bodied people. Um, people weren't thinking about it the same way at that time, but when you think about like a, a woman's road race, um, that those spaces that are women's only events are created to have a safety a feeling of safety and celebration that isn't um, uh, that is like separate from the dominant male culture, men's culture. It's not just about having your own finish line. It's about community and like gathering and and all those things. And I've been to women's only running camps where trans women have been present. It's been fantastic. I've been to road races. Um, I think that like truly sport is also divided by gender and it's also been divided by sex. So I think that um, 
we need to kind of, I want to encourage people to really think about fairness from multiple perspectives and just have an open mind. Wherever you end up landing on the issue is fine. What is not cool, um, which is really harmful, is when you, when a person gets so locked on one definition of fairness and in fighting for that, they are, they have um, attack an entire group of people um, as with transphobic comments, with refusing to use their preferred pronouns with all kinds of things that are just extremely hurtful. And and you said like, this is a very contentious issue, but nobody, um, nobody is trying to like take over sports. Um, This is really about a bunch of individual people, cisgender, transgender, non-binary people just trying to like move through the world in the body they're in with the identity they have in ways that feel good. And, um, and yes, there will be some conflicting rights that need to be worked out, but we have to do it more respectfully. We have to do it with more kindness and compassion. And so that's why I believe like when we're talking about the future of women's sports, we need trans women at that table. We need non-binary people at that table, disabled women, women of color. We need all, the whole group if we're going to be do it, having a conversation about the future of sport. We can't be making decisions for subgroups without their voice. And um, wh- whatever decisions end up being made, of course, when you get any group of people together, not everyone is going to get every single thing that they ideally want. There are compromises that have to be made, but they should be at the table. They need to, everyone needs to be at the table. Absolutely. Absolutely. Finally, Lauren, are you, are you hopeful about the future of running? Do you think we are making progress in terms of gender equality? Oh, clearly, there's still a long way to go, but do you feel like there is m- momentum towards a fairer future? Yes and no. Um, I'm really encouraged by the boost in research that's happening right now. Like Dr. Kirstie Elliott Sale right out of the UK is like just driving all this amazing research in the menstrual cycle and performance that's shaping other people's research all over the world. Um, Dr. Kate Ackerman with REDS, Dr. Trent Stellingworth. I mean, there's a lot of female specific work being done right now and conferences, that stuff makes me excited. Um, We really aren't making much progress on adding and keeping women in coaching. Um, We still have no movement, uh, um, but I, I hope this book, if there's one thing that came out of this, could make a difference on on a coaching certification for the female athlete body. Uh, but that's nothing's going to change until we have some sort of required base level education, really. Um, and and then also um, the the big area that I feel like is kind of going backwards actually still is the sexualization of the professional female athlete. Um, I have this section in my book where. I talk about going professional and, uh, you know, I'm not like the, I'm not the most smoking hot athlete on the planet or anything, but I aligned with traditional Western beauty standards in a way that got me paid more than I would have if I had run the same times and and wasn't deemed attractive by the male executives that were writing the checks. Um, And that, that is all kind of cloaked under this idea of quote marketability and marketability for a female. I mean, yeah, marketability for a female athlete is extremely important and who gets paid. And so the athletes that we have, at least in the United States, I think in some other countries, you have some level of merit-based, exclusively merit-based funding that guarantees you can at least stay in the sport for a while if you're not attractive to the male executives with the checkbooks. But in the United States, we don't we don't really have that. Um and so if you the people who you see representing the United States are aren't necessarily 
a selection of our most talented and promising. It's it's some of that, and it's also who's viewed as someone who will help sell shoes because of the way they look. And we've recently had um, this new uh, legislation that's passed in the United States, um, NIL, it's name, image, and likeness, and it allows NCAA athletes to get paid for the first time. There used to be kind of like an amateurism rule where you couldn't get paid as a collegiate or you'd lose your eligibility. And, um, and now they've changed that. And what's happening is these, the sexualization of female professional athletes is just moving younger. And the female athletes who are getting these contracts in college are getting it based, a lot of them based on how they look. And it adds an exceptional amount of pressure to like present yourself online in crop tops. And you're sort of living your life for the male gaze instead of just living in your body and, one of the most beautiful things about sports is that at its core, one of the things we fought so hard for as women was we wanted that same arena that men have where we can use our body in these powerful ways that aren't sexual. It's like you find a home in your body based on how you can click off 400 meter repeats, how you can like put on a finishing kicker on someone or like dunk a basketball or whatever it is, all these different things that you get to do that have nothing to do with how you look. They should have nothing to do with how you look. And that beast is is more powerful than ever in the marketing space of yeah. women's sports and that's discouraging yeah, for sure i think the role of social media in that as well is particularly um terrifying really yes. in terms of the impact that it has in, yeah. in athlete and what uh, athlete i put inverted called the value of an athlete in terms of their following and and, and all that sort of stuff and the pressure on young on young women to yeah there's a rise in them like female athlete anxiety depression suicides um, there've been some higher profile suicides in the collegiate level that, you know, you don't ever fully know unless someone tells you in detail why they did, why they ended their life. But, you know, there's clearly a lot of pressure to present, to not just be able to live your life, but to present this life to others in a way that can keep you financially stable. I mean, it's like the stakes are quite high. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. If people want to get hold of Good for a Girl, Lauren, where, where can they go to get it? Um, well, in the UK, it's it's published by Virago, um, which was really exciting for me. It's a publishing house I really admire. And I, I mean, I think they're available wherever books are sold on January 10th. And um, also audiobook is available, um, e-reader version, and um, you can pre-order it. I'm not sure exactly which date this is airing, but you can certainly pre-order it anywhere books are sold. Lauren, thanks so much for making the time to come on the Runners World podcast, talk to us about um, Good for a Girl and all the stuff uh, surrounding it. Really, really great to have you on. And and, um, thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really grateful. So that brings us to the end of this week's Runners World podcast. A huge thanks to our guest, Lauren Fleshman, and to you, of course, for listening. Christmas is around the corner, guys. If you're thinking of that perfect gift for a runner in your life, well, guess what? It's a subscription to Runners World magazine. Go on the internet. Google Runners World UK subscription and you'll probably find a web page from Hearst Magazines. That's the publishing house, guys. That's the one. Click on that. Find yourself a Christmas deal. There'll be one on. Give that give that gift that keeps on giving. That is a running magazine arriving at your door every month. <laughs> um, so yeah, thanks you. Thanks for listening. Um, please subscribe if you haven't already and uh, you'll hear from us next week. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.